everyone with an interest in NASH or, more broadly, fatty liver disease, surfs up. Season 2, Episode 47 of Surfing the NASH Tsunami, our second half of the best stories of summer, starts now. This week on Surfing the Nash Tsunami. Using ELF and other non-invasive tests, as it will allow us to risk stratify within cirrhosis and also in the pre-cirrhotic stages. And at the moment, we're sort of stuck with these ordinal stages. Your F2, so your risk of a liver-related event in the next 10 years is 1%. You've got F3, suddenly that risk is 3%. You've got F4, suddenly it's 10%. And that's not reality because we know that fibrosis progresses gradually. A patient doesn't go from being F2 to F3 and have a step change in risk on a single day. It's a gradual change. We can learn from this paper about different modalities to risk stratify patients or identify high-risk patients. MRI, PDFF did what performed well in this paper, but obviously it's not available everywhere. And I haven't talked to Stephen about this, but I think everyone got a fiber scan in this study as well. So it'd be really interesting to see, I assume they're planning that analysis as well, to look at a fiber scan cutoff and see how well that that did. This summer was somewhat taken aback and grounded when I was giving a talk on emerging therapies and a very astute physician said, you know, but Manel, for those of us that aren't in drug development and have been waiting, you know, a decade for drugs to come forward and you're telling us it's maybe two or three years additionally before an FDA drug becomes available, what are we going to do right here, right now? And how are you in this field going to help us figure out what armamentarium to use pending a drug being available? A global community of fatty liver disease stakeholders comes together to explore the most important challenges in diagnosing, treating, and developing medications for patients with fatty liver diseases. Join liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell and pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green as they interview key opinion leaders Drs. Ian Rowe, Michelle Long, Mazen Nuruddin, and Manal Abdelmalik as each one identifies what they consider the most important issues of the last few months. This week on Surfing the Nash Tsunami. Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. Two weeks ago, we did not use our usual group discussion format, but instead did individual interviews with three of our favorite patient advocates on what they considered the most important issue of summer. I want to thank you for listening. It was the it was the best received patient advocate focused episode we've yet done on this podcast. So I like the idea so much, I thought maybe we would try it this week with KOLs. So instead of having a roundtable, I've asked three of our favorite KOLs we've not seen for a while: Ian Rowe, Michelle Long, and Manal Abdul Malik. Each two prepare the same question. One thing that's happened in the last few months you consider really important in the fatty liver community. As you'll see, Ian and Michelle gave answers that aligned with what the advocates talked about. Manal went to a really different and fascinating place. So each of these conversations will make you think, and each of them will, I think, make you feel good about the future of fatty liver disease. So uh, sit back, listen, enjoy, and learn, as we say on the conversations, and we'll see you later. 
Two weeks ago, we did this with patients and patient advocates, Wayne uh, Eskridge, Tony Viliotti, Donna Cryer, and we got the largest audience we've ever gotten for a patient-focused issue, which I thought was really interesting. So we felt we'd come back this week and try it again with some of our KOL friends, and we'll be speaking this week with Ian Rowe, Michelle Long, and Manal Abdelmalik, and it's kind of the same idea. One interesting story the last six months, except we're going to treat this a little more like a typical episode. So after I say hi to Louise and Ian, hey Louise. Hi, everybody. Ian, how are you doing today? Um, good, thank you, Roger. Pleasure to be here as always. Okay, good. So we're going to do icebreakers. Who wants to go first? I'll jump in first and I'll leave the rest to Ian. I spent a very pleasant week with my parents, driving them around the Isle of Man. I think I claimed neutrality before in an episode being Manx, and therefore, like Switzerland, we're in the middle of everything. My mother is Manx, so we were visiting family, graves, you name it. We were doing every single road on the Isle of Man in a week. It was very lovely. It was very nice. And for anybody who knows the Isle of Man, we did say good day to the little people every time we went to across the ferry bridge. Excellent. Top that, Ian. I didn't think there was anything new I had left to learn about Louise, but that certainly has has done it. I guess, so for me, it's a sort of personal and professional highlight because in the last couple of weeks, I've had confirmation from the university that they'd like me on their permanent staff and they've promoted me to associate professor, which um, having been there for a few years and with some delays due to COVID, that's been a great relief and sense of pride. With that, there's a bit of momentum in Leeds now to develop liver research in Leeds, both basic science and also applied and outcomes based. So that's a big step forward, both professionally, but also personally. Ian, that's fantastic. Bravo and well Fantastic earned. news. Congratulations. Thank you very much. And we can say we knew you when. Yeah. Well, I have to say a little thank you because the panel were impressed with my public engagement work as part of the podcast. So that was a little added bonus. And so thank you to you too for having me on and, and listening to me. And learning from you. Enough that I'm certain you'll be a fantastic professor. But to all our listeners who aspire to get a full-time academic position, please send us all your brilliance. We'll bring you on as we have the end and we'll see how many careers we can help advance but I love it so congrats Ian that's great news first of all a couple of best for the podcast really quickly we actually hit number one in Macedonia this week the number one medical podcast in the country which the first time we've been number one anywhere in the world we'd been number two previously in I think it was India at one point so we've now actually been number one in Macedonia and again in this case rose to 110 of all podcasts all topics in the country we've also debuted on the medical and health and fitness lists in Russia we came back on the India list at number nine and we had 11 countries in the world today where we made their top podcast lists, which speaks to, I think, the general momentum of the podcast over the summer. So for those of you who've been listening, we're downloading morally. Thank you very much. My personal best is for the first time in a decade, I ran a 5K and ran within two seconds of the time I ran a decade ago, which when the decade is not between 15 and 25, is actually probably pretty good. That's enough good stuff for all of us. And, and Ian, floor is yours. One story, publication, article, news story, presentation of the summer that you've seen that uh, you think is really important for the community. Now I'm an academic, I can not choose papers. The thing that really caught my attention was about the FDA approvals of ELF, so the blood test for fibrosis. And one of the things that often surprises me is the way that systems develop in parallel and at different speeds, and that's often governed by regulatory differences. And we've had ELF available for use in the UK for five years routinely and for longer than that as a research tool. We've used ELF quite a bit in the and it's been useful and it'll be really interesting to see how it's rolled out in the US because there are distinct advantages in the way that it can be deployed because it's blood-based, it's quick and I would say relatively easy because you get a single number back at the end of it which allows you to provide some interpretation of the patient's future risk of liver-related events. The other thing that it led me to do was to just go digging around a bit on the FDA website in the biomarker 
worker qualification program. And you can begin to see there what the future impact of non-invasive tests might be in terms of their use in clinical practice. There are several now applications, both from the Litmus Consortium in the EU and from the Nimble Consortium in the US, looking to identify or validate markers against approved contexts of use. And those contexts of use are really around enriching for patients in clinical trials, but that's not a very small step from enriching for patients in clinical practice for treatment. And so these steps towards overall non-invasive testing for liver disease and away from liver biopsy is really the thing that I'm most excited by because it's the thing that will make the biggest difference in clinical practice in terms of patient identification, risk stratification, and ultimately treatments and improved outcomes. That is what's excited me. I think there are other developments over the summer that I'm sure that other people will talk about in therapeutics and in other things. But, but this step, and it's a relatively small step, but it's a step towards the non-invasive diagnosis and therefore downstream treatment of people that perhaps make the biggest difference in terms of who we can ultimately treat. So um, first of all, thanks for that. And well explained. Two of the three patient advocate biggest things of summer, Wayne Esbridge talked specifically about this. And then Donna Cryer talked about in general, which she actually started with the easel guidelines, but wound up talking about advances in ways that, that beyond the biopsy was moving forward. Forward and this being one of them. Donna was careful to note the limits of the indication that the FDA granted. But what I'm struck by is that that indication plays well against the comment that you made, because they're talking about prognostic for cirrhosis, right? So if, if the biggest problem in clinical practice right now is, can we find people who are just pre-cirrhotic or clearly on a fast path to a bad place, and we can sort them out, that's probably a place where we can have the greatest impact on the economics and quality of life of the disease at a per-patient level in one shot. Yeah. So cirrhosis and people who are at imminent risk of events is the where treatment today is stands the chance of having the greatest impact. And I'd be a bit surprised if nobody talked about fruxifermin in one of the other episodes, because that's a treatment where there is potential to see benefit in the short term with treatment reduction of reducing progression of cirrhosis and reduction of clinical events in a short and very clinically meaningful time frame. One of the things about using ELF and other non-invasive tests is it will allow us to risk stratify within cirrhosis and also in the pre-cirrhotic stages, F2, F3, and into F4. And by that, I mean, at the moment, we're sort of stuck with these ordinal stages. Your F2, so your risk of a liver-related event in the next 10 years is 1%, for instance. You've got F3, suddenly that risk is 3%. You've got F4, suddenly it's 10%. And that's not the reality, because we know that fibrosis progresses gradually. A patient doesn't go from being F2 to F3 and have a step change in risk on a single day. It's a gradual change. And these biomarkers markers that have a continuous scale, ELF, Fibroscan, MRE, all of them really, that gives you the chance to give better, clearer prognostication across a continuous scale. It's not 1%, it's 2.5% versus 5% versus 7 versus 10 versus 15. That's where the real value of the non-invasive test will be above biopsy because they'll give a much clearer idea of what's likely to happen to the patients in a probabilistic sense. If I take 100 patients like you, I know that 30 of them this year will experience X or 10 of you will experience why. And that's where the cardiologists are and have been for a long time now, framing and risk indices, the ASCVD calculators, and they give you that risk and they show what the impact of treatment might be through modification of that risk. Whereas with cirrhosis and F3, it's almost binary. It's this risk or that risk. Having a much clearer idea about risk would certainly, it would aid clinical decision making. And I think it would help patients understand what their risks actually are. Well, no, I agree with everything Ian was saying. And for me to move it slightly 
really away from the Western world and the impact that non-invasive technology has, and particularly ELF, Fibroscan, MRE and that for us. When you talked about cost effectiveness and the greatest potential to in the more severe disease and the imminent patients that we could locate, there's been a recent set of publications on the rapid rise of NAFLD and NASH in Africa. Third world, middle income, low income developing countries and the potential for non-invasive therapies in areas where we're seeing a rapid rise and the other non-communicable diseases like type 2 diabetes rising, heart disease obviously, all of the ones that we know that are linked. The potential greatest impact for me as coming from a more wellness aspect is the earlier location of liver disease in income strapped countries where it could have the greatest effect both socially, economically and development. If we can stop these countries reaching the levels that we have seen and do see in the US, UK, Canada, Australia, all the usual suspects, then that has the greatest potential for me and where non-invasive technology could re- and blood markers like ELF and the prognosis and all of that really, really have vast abilities to change what is currently a tsunami. They're coming to, but not quite there. And I just wondered whether or not that's where our greatest potential for these non-invasive technologies is because they are limited on finances and resources, but ELF can be deployed. Lots of other biomarkers can be deployed. Fibroscan combined with these, they can be done relatively cost-effectively without biopsy. We are moving well beyond biopsy and that's why what Ian's brought up and Wayne and Donna is absolutely vital. It is a massive movement. There will inevitably be a balance between cost and, you know, an impact of what you identify. And because the prevalence of disease is so high and the majority of people with fatty liver disease won't develop progressive liver fibrosis and die from liver disease, if the test is about identifying those people who are going to die from liver disease, then probably the first step is going to have to be cheap in order to make it both deliverable and cost effective. In that context, it has to be a blood test first, not an imaging test, because you can't put, you know, in the UK, we can't put 15 million people through an MRI scanner or even a fibre scan, probably. So very simple, cheap test is likely to be optimal. If the question is not only about liver disease, and that, you know, takes you back to the that sort of wellness aspect, then it may be that we've got even cheaper and better things like body weight or BMI or waist circumference that might provide a very good guide to people's overall metabolic risk. And the cardiovascular risk calculators, which calibrated to the appropriate populations, will give a good indication of what that risk is. When we talk about these these tests, we have to be clear what it is that we're trying to do, what it is we're trying to prevent, and how we're going to impact the patient's remaining unanswered question about what telling people about their fibrosis severity means to them, and at what point that information meaningfully impacts on behaviour change. And we see patients in clinic where the information definitely impacts patients, but we also see patients where it doesn't. I saw a man today in a post-transplant clinic who the light bulb moment for him was not abnormalities in his liver, you know, in his liver blood tests after transplants. The light bulb moment was going to his mother's house, standing on her scales because she'd said to him, you don't look well, you've put on a lot of weight. And that was what it took for him. And that understanding between individuals what it's going to take to make the difference is a big missing piece in our jigsaw. Louise has observed more times than I've got fingers and toes on this podcast that one of the nice things about FiberScan is that visual finding, being able to show people pictures has an impact that you tend not to have when you can't show pictures. So this isn't that, right? These are numbers. They're blood-based numbers. However, if you then had to take the next step 
Ian, and you didn't have the good fortune of having mom saying, get on the scale, son, you don't look good. What within your armamentarium of tests and tools do you think would have the greatest probability of helping that patient understand their problem? And Louis, same question to you. I think we can learn from what other people are doing in terms of risk prediction and risk communication. So the idea that you could provide a more bespoke risk estimate to a patient based on a L4 transient elastography value gives that opportunity to put that result in context and we know now that presenting that information graphically in terms of the number of people um, who are going to be impacted, good outcome, bad outcome, hopefully in the future of those people with a predicted bad outcome, what's going to be changed with treatment. We know that that helps people understand what the risk to them is and that helps to stimulate change in treatment particularly, but probably also a bit of behaviour change. But what we actually need is better information about what absolute risk is and, and how we communicate that with a patient graphically. Ian's absolutely Right. But I think graphically is the key. Perspectum have recently released a patient piece of research. And funny enough, it's exactly what we were talking about in the podcasts, probably as they started that research or before that, is the fact that visualising it. And obviously, MRI, PDFF, you can visualise. They do it nicely as we do at Towers and Health in red, amber and green. You make it understandable. It is important to find out what they want, what their outcomes are. It may or may not be, I want a better quality of life or I want to sleep better. All of that is very much enhanced with a visual aid and a language that is understandable. I've said multiple times, I have patients that come to us having seen in their letters and discussed ad infinitum that they've got cirrhosis, but don't believe they've got cirrhosis in the same way as you would get cirrhosis from alcohol because they don't drink. So it's education about the presentation, the symptoms, how they're going to affect you. And visualisation, the advantage that I have being able to do fibroscans so regularly on people is they get immediate responses, they get to see it, and they get to see the alteration that a small change can make very quickly. And once you see small changes, even over a couple of weeks, you get motivation. They know that you can achieve something. My husband managed to defat his liver. He dropped sugar. He didn't drop weight, but he changed diet context. He improved the quality of diet and actually dropped his cap score by about 40 over a couple of weeks just on dropping sugar. He's a phenotype that responds to sugar very quickly and not. And the fact that you could do that within a couple of weeks of changing that diet without seeing massive weight loss actually motivated him to continue. And then the next scan. So where I'm in that luxurious position, I can do that. A lot of healthcare they don't have. They don't have the time. Post-COVID, we, do, we have long lists. It's very, very difficult. Stephen has said it before, that if you don't catch somebody within the first three months of trying to change the behaviour to give motivation and reinforcement, it's actually very difficult to sustain. But with Fibroscan, with PDFF, with MRE, with all of these new visual diagnostics, it's great because patients actually can see the internal change and they really respond to that. So it's very much listening to and engaging with that patient. You'll find the bright lever in 99.9% of people. And as Ian says, that light bulb moment, it's about persistence, about staying engaged with that patient and staying engaged. It can take years to get that light bulb moment. But if you're always there, they start to trust you. And that's really, really important. One of the pieces of work that I'm proud of, which is which doesn't really show our carers in a great light, is about patients' understanding of cirrhosis. And these are patients who are coming to our medical clinic before we had a nurse-led cirrhosis clinic. And very few of them really understood what was going on. They didn't know why they were having the tests, but they were coming for them. Um, they didn't really understand what the risks of cirrhosis were. Some of them didn't even know that they had cirrhosis, despite the fact it was clear that they'd been told, they'd been signposted to information, and sometimes even given information. We're undoubtedly 
you're missing a fundamental aspect of helping the patient understand their condition and engaging in the self-management that in a lot of what we deal with, lifestyle associated, whether it's alcohol or diabetes and obesity, if we don't engage them in understanding their condition, then making the changes to behaviour is likely to be even more difficult. I totally agree. And I remember writing an editorial for a gastroenterology nursing about hepatology nurses are an asset to be cherished. Because actually, if you get a good hepatology nurse, if you get the time and the effort to be able to do that, you will give far more information over a longer period of time that people respond to, which keeps people out of hospital. The other thing that you say there with your nurse-led cirrhosis clinic, which we had at Imperial as well, it's about the education of the family around that patient who feel lost. If that patient becomes encephalopathic, it's they're the first people who can see it. It is an entire system around those people that need to be, and that nurses and medical teams together with dietitians that can really, really, in cirrhosis patients, be absolutely valuable. If there are centres out there without nurse-led cirrhosis clinics, then I'd strongly advise you to develop them because they are vital to support your hepatologists and gastro teams. It's a no-brainer for me, but I'm a nurse specialist in that field. So, But I'm glad you are doing that work. I, I commend you for it. It's a great piece of work. I agree. We don't have much time left. I want to ask a very different question, Ian. I want you to give about a 30 or 45 second answer, and then we're going to do final and wrap up. Last week, Mayo Clinic team put a paper in hepatology about the ability to use liver stiffness measurement to do prognosis in chronic liver disease patients. Here's the question. If MRE can do a robust job of setting prognosis for chronic liver disease patients, but isn't an accessible tool, one of the Stephen talks a lot about is tying MRE to biopsy results because then you actually can use MRE as a outcome and then you're beyond the biopsy. This is one step beyond that, which is how likely do you think it is that people, particularly in some of the environments that Louise is talking about, will try to go beyond the machine, try ELF or other blood tests to MRE and take your point about prognosis and, and triage even one step further. So we don't know enough about prognosis for ELF in widespread clinical practice. Biopsy has established itself because of its link with that long-term outcomes and the nature of liver disease is that it takes years, some tens of years to develop outcomes. Now we can enrich populations now with the information that we have to be able to gain that information quite quickly and with tests that are widely used we can leverage health informatics database type research to work out more clearly what the impact of those tests are. So I think we'll be able to get there quite quickly. Personally I think we've got enough non-invasive tests now. We've probably got far too many and we need to try and rationalise those and I hope that that's what Litmus and Nimble will do. Ideally they will come together and say that we think test X is the best or test X, Y and Z. So you've got one or two blood-based biomarkers, an imaging biomarker, probably it'll end up being two ultrasound and MR. So here's a panel of four, five tests. This is what we're going to use. Get on and validate those against prognosis. Forget about biopsy. Once you've done that, then we can look at treatment associated changes. And with that pathway, you'll have a way forward to get beyond biopsy and provide compelling information about the outcomes and modification of outcomes with those biomarkers, because that's what we actually need. We don't need any more studies of diagnostic accuracy, in my view. If there's one sentence or one thought that you want our audience to take away from this discussion, each of you, what would that sentence be? I would say non-invasive tests, be it blood-based, ELF, or imaging-based with elastography, because they are continuous, offer the possibility of personalized risk stratification beyond what's available with liver biopsy. Well, I'm going to jump on Ian's cirrhosis nurse and the clinic and I'm going to say that if you've got limited resources, if you want to enhance the care that you give patients as a physician, then you need to enhance 
enhance and really would benefit from enhancing the care and support the patients get through education that somebody like a nurse specialist for cirrhosis, particularly as we're talking about that population, can provide and deliver because it will reap both the patients, the family and the gastro or hepatology units fast rewards. These patients are time consuming if they're inpatients. If you can keep them out well educated, well supported with a direct point of contact, you really will enhance your care, your practice for your patients and yourselves. The soapbox I'm going to jump on is about numeracy and how little people understand about the meaning of numbers. Look, cirrhosis is something that's poorly understood already because of issues around alcohol, etc. But even if we get better prognostic estimates of what might happen to an individual patient, the individual's ability to process those numbers correctly in first passes, let's just say marginal. People can take a patient's hand at that moment and walk them through the journey of understanding what's about to happen to them and what they can do to affect it. In that regard, probability might not be as powerful as a picture, but used right, I think, can cover a lot of ground. And with that, I'm going to stop the tape. Ian, actually, professors, thank you so much for joining us today. Congratulations on um, an eventful summer. And I'm looking forward to having you back with us at ASL if not sooner. So this conversation is with our good friend, Michelle Long, who's actually was with us at the beginning of summer, and now she gets to ring out summer with us as well. Michelle, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Roger? I'm doing fine, and Louise is still here. Uh, Louise, you were doing great 45 minutes ago. I'm hoping you still are. I'm absolutely fabulous now. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Now, Louise and I are to a test because we're going to do the typical icebreaker, but we just did that with Ian Rowe 45 minutes ago, so now we have to come up with backup good news. For that reason, Michelle, I'm going to ask you to go first. One good thing has happened in the last couple of weeks. Great. Well, I have a mild stone birthday coming up this year. And as a treat to myself, I've been training for a adventure weekend, which I'll be going to this upcoming weekend with two very dear friends going to Zion National Park in southern Utah. And in the ultimate irony, as I was exercising and getting ready for this milestone birthday, I injured myself like any budding 40-year-old would do. But good news is that I'm feeling better and I'm ready to go and um, very excited to spend some time in southern Utah, which is one of my favorite places in the U.S. Fantastic. I suppose I would have to say as a second best was my A team, which is Liverpool, beating my B team, which is my husband's A team, Crystal Palace 3-0. But Crystal Palace actually playing very well at Anfield. Although it's the one fixture either where Anfield or at Sellers Park that my husband and I, one of us is not going to be as happy as the other. We both quite enjoyed this one, but I came out victorious again. So that's my other happy moment of the week. My happiest moment might actually be that Louise didn't mention how bad Crystal Palace beat Tottenham, which was kind of like a drum. Um, Tottenham plays tomorrow, by the way, which is why oh, I couldn't I've track this. I've forgotten about that one. Can I re record my favorite? <laughs> <laughs> No, we've not been good. I I said this already, but I'm going to say it again. Michelle, we actually yesterday made top of the charts, top medical podcast in Macedonia for a day. We're number two today. We were number one yesterday. Nice. But we've never been number one anywhere, even for a day. (laughs) And today, I think we're in the top 10 in three countries and on on the charts at 11. I um, was chatting with a friend of mine who is a blues artist who said the reason to do a Christmas album pre-Christmas is to get on billboards. You've got bragging rights for life if you get it out. So, I think being number one in Macedonia is going to be our bragging right for at least a year or until we become number one somewhere else. And with that, Michelle, we're looking for stories about things that happened in summer that you think are really important for fatty liver community. Dive in. Where do you want to take us on today? Well, Roger, as you know, 
I'm an epidemiologist. So I was really excited to see the paper from Stephen Harrison and Niam Akhori on the perspective evaluation of the prevalence of fatty liver disease and NASH, an unselected middle-aged cohort. This is really exciting because we have such limited data, in particular on NASH. So it was really nice to see this well-done cohort come out that had a lot of really rich information. And I think we can take away a lot of important points. So this project had over 800 or so participants. These were people coming in for their screening colonoscopies, and they offered them MRI PDFF. And then from there, they used the standard MRI PDFF cutoff of greater than or equal to 5% as being consistent with fatty liver after ruling out other potential causes of fatty liver and offered them biopsy. One thing that's really unique about this study is they didn't just stop there. They also looked at those that were less than 5% fat on the MRI PDFF. And as long as they had met criteria by another imaging modality, they also offered them biopsy. So that was something that really set this paper apart is that often you don't get to see the biopsies in those that didn't meet the first branch point. One takeaway point is that about 20% of people didn't want a biopsy. And that was pretty impressive how low it was. In clinical practice, I would say it's higher for me anyway. And so I think that's interesting. Just in and of itself sort of highlights the need. One out of five patients are not getting the biopsy that we are recommending. The need for us to get away from biopsy. And then they reviewed the biopsies and overall the prevalence of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease was 37%, which is high and higher than in some other cohorts, especially unselected cohorts. In particular, those of Hispanic ethnicity, 55% prevalence of NAFLD, 57% among those that were obese, and 70% among diabetics. So those groups in particular are really standing out as higher risk. And then they went on to look at NASH. The overall prevalence of NASH was 14%, and that was out of everyone, including those that didn't get a biopsy. So if you looked at just among those that were biopsied, 37% had NASH. And so that tells us a few things. Prevalence of NASH is higher than I think we all have thought. And also that MRI PDFF does a pretty good job of differentiating those and kind of identifying a higher risk group. When we go back and look at the biopsies of those that had an MRI PDFF of less than 5%, the prevalence of NASH was only 1.5%. Thinking specifically specifically about NASH, again, we see diabetes as a major risk factor for prevalent NASH. 35% of people with diabetes had NASH and about 25% that were of Hispanic ethnicity, which I think speaks to genetic and probably some epigenetic associations with the Hispanic ethnicity. The other thing that was interesting and sort of reinforced in this paper is they looked at ALT to say, okay, what if we just said anyone with high ALT, what happened to them? How good was that at being able to identify NASH. And about 30% of those that had an ALT that was less than 40 still had NASH. So ALT is really not very good at identifying those that are higher risk. And even if we use the more conservative ALT cutoff of 19 
and 30, it's still about 20% of people still had NASH, even if they were below those ALT thresholds for women and men. The bottom line is that we need better tools to identify high-risk patients. MRI, PDFF did a nice job in this paper. And not only that, but I think we get a better picture of the prevalence of NASH in an unselected population that I think will help us understand the burden of disease that we're dealing with here. Thanks, Michelle. Yeah, that is a fantastic paper. We did an episode on that. And actually, Tony Villiotti, two weeks ago, in the patient advocate version of this, he's also heavily about epidemiology, pointed out the same paper. He, he paired it with a paper I've been trying to find hepatology communications about levels of awareness mm. that suggested that you had single-digit levels of awareness of what we were talking about here, of NAFL. But what was interesting in that paper, and I don't remember how they did the analysis, but they went through an NHANES database, and the number they got for NAFL out of the NHANES database was 36.8. So, yeah, I'd never seen it before. I will find it because if that were a confirmatory 37 from a large secondary data source, it would reinforce the breadth of the facts behind Stephen and Naeem's work. Yeah. I think you're right. It's a very, very different world if a quarter of the population has NAFLD and a quarter of those have NASH as compared to a third of the population has NAFLD and a third has NASH. And if the numbers are 37 and 37, you know, the thing just keeps, the, the number of patients you're talking about keeps exploding on you. Yeah, absolutely. This sample from the Harrison paper was 20% black, 75% white, and 25% of Hispanic ethnicity. So it is relatively well representative, I think, of the diversity of our country. And I think these numbers are really staggering. And just to me, highlight the need to identify these patients. Once we have our therapies and available, this is the burden that we are going to be facing. We need to understand how to treat them best and how to find those that are most at risk for progressive disease. Louise, do you have anything you want to add? I love that paper and I enjoyed discussing it the other week. And I'd be interested, Michelle Brook knows that as part of the work that I do is lifestyle and it's wellness and it's people who choose to come for a scan with no known history. They're not think And I reviewed 58 of those patients because I've just brought up the data here. And of those 58 people who had their baseline scan, 16 were female, 18 were male in the steatosis. And I, I, was, I was mainly interested in the cat. Nobody had NASH. So for me, it was the level of steatosis on the meta-analysis grading by Ecosense, which is anything above 249, 248 they use as below that, that it's safe and above. So I'm using their guidelines. But overall, we got 40, I think it was 41% of those patients had grade one steatosis or higher. And these are people who had no reason. They're just lifestyle. So I wonder whether or not if we were to do more generic incidents, and yes, there will be higher alcohol in taking some of those than not. But that general concept of how people just lead their general lives, if we say 41% of all people walking through the door actually have steatosis, they may or may not go on to get NASH, but you're going to be able to follow them to see. But also with the paper that was talking about baseline steatosis causing cardiac disease and the mortality now that steatosis and simple steatosis can confer in a lifestyle, either for children. I think it was Tracy Simon's piece that was really, really concerning. And I think it was Naeem there that said, I'm going to change my dialogue with my patients that you've got a soft liver and it's fatty, so don't worry too much, to actually you've got a soft liver, but your fat content's too high. We need to do something. And how much the evidence from Stephen's study and some of the others really, really 
do that from a clinical. These patients are in hospital for a reason, even if they're not fatty liver disease known. I think it's frightening the level of steatosis that could be out there because we're looking at select populations every time we look. It is a concern. How do you think we're really going to get to those populations? Yeah, I think that's a good point. Even Stephen's paper here, these are people who are engaged with care. They're coming in for a screening colonoscopy. So they already have some degree of engagement with care. And if we looked at all comers, we would see even more disease because they would potentially be, you know, there's probably healthy lifestyle behaviors that are associated with going to see your doctor and going to get your screening colonoscopy. In reality, those are the people that we have to treat. Those are the people that are coming to us. So that's who we have to deal with. But changing that dialogue with the patients you were talking about, getting out the public health message that this is really important and really focusing on changing lifestyles, changing behaviors while we await new medications. But that has to stay. That has to be out there. And we as hepatologists don't have to be the only ones delivering that message. That message should come from every physician that they see. And this is just another example, another reason to lose weight and to get healthy for a lot of our patients. Can I just ask, what do you think the level of education is within the endocrine population? I think Stevens, I think you quoted 35% of those with type 2 diabetes had a problem. I just generally don't feel the level of education going in in endocrinology is high enough for patients. I don't see it in the patient charities. I don't see it on their websites. I don't see that general discussion because it appears to be stigmatized within their own population. And yet liver disease is a really big cause of mortality now in that group. Yeah, absolutely. That's an easy place to start. And we have, in at least the US Diabetes Association guidelines, really do support even screening for fatty liver. They're pretty aggressive about that, recognizing that people living with diabetes are a higher risk group. But they're patients that have diabetes and their providers may be overwhelmed with, with taking care of their diabetes and they may not be thinking about it. This is something that I feel very strongly about. This is some of the work that I'm doing at Boston University is to try to address these knowledge gaps in providers as well to try and improve adherence to those guidelines and of risk stratification for high-risk patients, particularly those with diabetes. So I'm with you. I, I really don't think that the education is there either from the provider standpoint or from the patient standpoint. So then, of course, the question is, so what changes that, right? Someone I was talking with today or yesterday made the comment that SGLT2s start going generic in three to five years, and that at that point, they will become what metformin became when it went generic, which is a first-line therapy for an awful lot of patients. And that has obviously impact on liver, which means, you know, and kidney, which means it has impact on the whole metabolic chain. So that's one thing. If semaglutide is one of the earlier agents to get approved, obviously that will have impact as well because Novo comes through that door. I guess I'm wondering what we can do today to make that happen. Mindful of the idea that insulin sensitization is a large part of the transition from NAFL to NASH. I wonder if there's something in all this that we can be doing now to motivate? Don't know, just asking. Yeah, I wish I had an answer <laughs> because I do think that it's really alarming to kind of sit back and see these numbers that are so high that probably weren't as high even five years ago. We're seeing this get worse before our eyes. And I agree, you know, we really need to do something now about this. Although, Michelle, Stephen was pointing to a paper he did 10 years earlier that wasn't all that different in terms of the outcome. What data says it's gotten worse? And are there specific populations in which that's happened? Yeah. 
Yeah, we have such limited data that it's frustrating. This is one of the largest, if not the largest, study of biopsy patients that are an unselected population. So it's really exciting. So we don't really have a lot to compare it to, have a real lack of longitudinal data. And we have seen some of these numbers before, particularly the high levels of NASH among those with diabetes, but they haven't always been reproduced. So it's a little hard to say why that is and how overlapping are these populations. But the fact of the matter is, is that we continue to see worsening obesity in our country. And along with that, I'm only guessing, I'm only assuming that NASH is also getting worse. Makes sense. What feels like the logical next step. We can learn from this paper about different modalities to risk stratify patients or identify high-risk patients. MRI, PDFF did what performed well in this paper, but obviously it's not available everywhere. From reading their methods, I think everyone got a fiber scan in this study as well. So it'd be really interesting to see, I assume they're planning that analysis as well, to look at a fiber scan cutoff and see how well that that did, because that's just so much easier to do for most providers, although it's still not widely available. Other tools that can easily risk stratify patients are needed. Papers like this that show us how well does FIB4 do or NAFL fibrosis score or other kind of simple blood-based scoring systems would be helpful to see how well are they kind of differentiating. And there have been other studies that have done that, but not every center has access to these tools. And when we're talking about such a large population at risk, we need to figure out a way to make risk stratification accessible to our patients across care access. And that's still an outstanding challenge. Louise, how do we we address that challenge, do you think? Well, there's an easy question to answer at this time of night. (laughs) I think Michelle's got a point there. Stephen has, and I think, although FibroScan, for example, and it'd be interesting to see the comparison data on that, it isn't beyond reason to say that endoscopy in any way, shape or form is often going to be looking at high risk of what we would consider high risk patients by the nature of endoscopy. There is with the fiber scan technology that we have available today and smart exam and things like that, making it more and more effective on CAP, these patients are generally all fasted. There is no reason that as you go into endoscopy, you shouldn't routinely be fibroscanned and combine two tests in the area. You're saving patient time. You're combining high-risk patients. You're, you're already there. You've already got staff. It's easily movable and transferable between rooms. It runs off a battery. Use what it's designed for to actually help the practice that we've got. So the more we can combine for a patient, the more likely they are to engage because they're coming, being done and going. If you keep a patient four, five, six times, make errors, fail to get their bloods, do X, Y, and Z, they disengage. So the more we can do in the areas that we have high risk patients at the same time would be a great thing. And if you can combine somebody from endocrinology and hepatology all coming into the same environment and combine our tests, which is the big advantage of not silo healthcare, because we know healthcare is very siloed. We need to be more savvy because patients will disengage and we're losing them. And those patients who disengage are at risk. So there's things we can put in. It's not just endoscopy. Postmenopausal women are now the biggest cause of liver transplantation in that age group is fatty
anxiety, liver disease. I'm not aware yet that we've screened women who become menopausal and then postmenopausal fatty liver disease. So there are things that we can do with higher risk populations that we need to just be a little bit more creative and inventive. Stephen's study showed how it can be done in an endoscopy environment with high risk patients. That's interesting because one of the things I think about when you talk about menopausal, postmenopausal women is that they may be slightly easier to reach and educate than some of the other population segments we talked about. Low-lying fruit has two benefits. Number one is it starts to solve the problem. And number two is it motivates people to do what's harder. So that's really an interesting place to address the issue. Well, Stephen goes on about podiatry as well. They're all prescribing fungal, antifungals yeah. for God knows what. Mm-hmm. So um, <laughs> there, we can be inventive, but at the moment we're quite constrained as to where we see liver disease. And being a liver nurse, I've actually gone to liver health rather than liver disease. A lot of people do not need to get liver disease if we address liver health. That's just where I'm trying to come from both sides, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Although going back to the epidemiology side of things and the number side of things, which is where I live, if 38% of the population has this problem, that means a decent chunk of just about everybody. You know, so in a lower incidence subpopulation, you're down to 20 or 25. Well, that's, that's, we thought 25 was a big number when we thought that was the total population. Exactly. Okay. As we get to the half hour mark, which we just kind of slid past neatly, Michelle, one thought you would like listeners to take away from this conversation that they can do something with. Thinking about which patients are at high risk, whether they're coming in to see you for diabetes care, liver health, cardiovascular disease, whatever the reason why you're seeing patients, thinking about fatty liver as an important condition that could potentially be impacting our patients, thinking about persons that with diabetes or who are obese or perhaps who are of Hispanic ethnicity, that they may be higher risk. And remembering that simple things like ALT are really not sufficient to risk stratify patients. So you have to be deliberate about evaluating the liver using more sophisticated tools, whether that be imaging or some blood-based markers that we have, like FIB4, things like that. That's a good point. I, I have a fantasy that we can teach a cadre of word police to hang out in physician offices all over America and fine people $20 when they use the word liver function test to define ALT and AST as compared to liver <laughs> enzymes. I think that would be a huge start. And the money can actually be donated to screening patients, figuring out who has fatty liver disease, right? So that would be a win-win. I guess my takeaway, first of all, is we can't ever complain about the urgency of this issue because of the population size we're talking about, number one. But number two, I like Louise's comment that if we think about the patient groups differently, we might find targets that are easier to address that we've not thought of. And then, Michelle, finally, to go back to the point you just made, if we're going to go to the obvious targets, we need to figure out how to address them in ways that are culturally appropriate. I'm not going to go into detail on this because I don't know if the details, but one of the classic health communication stories in the U.S. in the last quarter in the 20th century was Hispanic women and mammography, where it took them a long time to figure out how to make the message fit with the woman's life, which is don't make it about the woman, make it about everyone. It depends on her. We need to think about how to make this effort affirmative and not threatening to the things people love and hold dear. So thank you for a great conversation and good luck on your sentinel birthday and getting to do everything you want to do in Southern Utah. And I look forward to seeing you soon. Great. Stay safe. Yeah. And don't get injured. No more injuries. Yeah. Thank you. For our third and final conversation, of this week's episode. We're back with our friend Manal Abdul-Malik, who we've not seen for a couple of months, few months maybe even. Hey, Manal, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Roger. Thank you for having me back. So we're also happy to see Manal, but I can't tell whether Louise or Manal has a bigger smile right now, but um, it's competitive and they're both huge. We both have good smiles. Yeah, we have both have lovely smiles. I always love Manal, which it comes on. Always funny. Yes, I, I agree. So let's just dive right in, okay? Uh, icebreakers. Manal, one good thing that's happened in the last week or two that you 
want to share with our audience? Well, uh, one good thing that's happened in the last week or two, I have succumbed to the challenges of planning my daughter's 13th birthday party. Not young enough to do what we typically did and not quite old enough to do anything else. So I'm kind of in a black box with 13, but we're moving on. <laughs> so it's been a lot of fun, uh, you know, watching kids grow up and landmark birthday for my daughter. So without giving too much away, is there anything special going on at the party that she won't know about because she doesn't listen to this podcast? Oh, is there? You know, she practically planned this on her own. You know, made it easy for me. A little go-karting, a little horseback riding, a few nice, you know, meals in between. A whole day's event, I guess. Mom's just a good Can I come? That sounds fantastic. <laughs> I'm right there with you. Go-karting, horseback riding. How do you do better than that? That sounds like a fantastic day. Sounds like a good day. It sounds great. Okay. So, Louise, what do you have since yesterday? Well, I'm going to go to the one that, just to wind you up that I didn't use, that I could have used, that you didn't want me to use, which was the fact that the Crystal Palace beat Tottenham 3-0. <laughs> so... Back to the old, she said, she said, Manal Roger said I, he was happy that I didn't choose that one as one of my ones yesterday, so I get the ability to do it today. <laughs> yeah, and it wasn't clear whether Louise was going to be here today, so I felt safe about doing that, but obviously it was a mistake. All right, so I guess my good news of the last 24 hours, you know what, my best news I can't really talk about because it's, it's a client information, but over the last week, five or six different companies, usually small, usually specialized in some way, have reached out to us to talk about something in one episode of the podcast, I want to be introduced to someone. I am amazed at the breadth of innovation around things like uh, digital health and different ways of patient education and communication that are out there. We've talked about excitement in terms of drug development advances and learning more about the disease and non-invasive technologies making progress. There are a whole other areas in terms of behavioral health, digital health, education, where people are doing some fantastic things. And it's really, it has become one of the better parts of my job to get to learn about that. So let me just stop there and turn to my now and say, this is your show. One story of the last few months that you think is really important for the fatty liver community. And then take five, seven minutes and let us know what it is and why you feel that way about it. One very exciting event that I believe has been very important in the past few months is the NIH's recognition and investment in liver disease and particularly where it matters most, which is cirrhosis and the funding of the new liver cirrhosis network. Now, this is a beautiful transition from the investment that was initially made as a consortium with the non-alcoholic steatohepatitis clinical research network when there was a time where there was no drugs in drug development for fatty liver disease at all. And it started off with the Piven study and then followed up with the Flint study. And we then had a complete enrichment of new compounds and this emerging wave of drug development in fatty liver disease. We are most challenged, of course, is this arena of increasing prevalence of patients with cirrhosis and advanced liver disease. We have had, sadly, many promising compounds potentially fail in making any uh, impact on primary endpoints in advanced liver disease, whether that be F3 or F4. And in recognition of this significant public health need, the NIAAA, NIDDK, and NCI kind of came together and funded what is now a consortia of centers across the country who will be completely immersed in studying cirrhosis of all types, the natural history, formulating a database, evaluating biomarkers, risk factors, 
years and even conducting together a consortia-wide trial using statins as potentially repurposed drug that may be beneficial for cirrhosis. But in the tail of that, what really happened to me this summer was was somewhat taken aback and grounded when I was giving a talk on, on emerging therapies and a very astute physician said, but Manel, for those of us that aren't in drug development and have been waiting a decade for drugs to come forward and you're telling us it's maybe two or three years, what are we going to do right here, right now? And how are you, you know, in this field going to help us figure out what armamentarium to use pending pending a drug being available? So those of us that are with industry and, and FDA and academic medical center are arriving a wave, a very exciting one at that of drug development. But those that are in the community caring for these patients are feeling challenged. You know, what do I do? What can I offer? I offer diet and exercise. It's not really working. Help me. And I stumbled across a fascinating paper that came out this summer. And actually, uh, it adds to an increasing body of literature. But this was a paper by Ritzig and his colleagues. Senior author was Jacob George. And it was published in APNT, Elementary Pharmacology and Therapeutics this summer. And I found it fascinating because this was a pilot study, but it was a randomized clinical study of the acute effects of metformin versus placebo on portal pressure in patients with cirrhosis. Now, why is this important? Well, why we really care about fatty liver disease or any liver disease is the ultimate endpoints for which our patients succumb to negative clinical outcomes. You know, how they feel, how they function, complications of ascites and variceal bleeding and bacterial peritonitis and ultimately complications of renal syndrome or pulmonary syndrome, many complications that ultimately are a consequence of what really matters, which is cirrhosis, not the inflammation, not the fat. I found this paper fascinating. The field as a whole has kind of been somewhat dismissive of metformin or even statins or potentially many repurposed drugs that could be beneficial for our patients with advanced liver disease. And what this, this group did is they randomized 16 patients to receive one dose of metformin, one dose, 1,000 milligrams, and 15 patients who received placebo. And they performed hepatic vein pressure measurements, catheterizations, to measure hepatic venous pressure gradient and endocyanine green infusion, which is a surrogate of liver function. And what was fascinating is that they actually demonstrated a clinically significant improvement in hepatic venous pressure gradient in 46% of those that received 1,000 milligrams at metformin at 90 minutes compared to placebo for which there was no change in portal pressure. Not only was there a decrease in portal pressure in a good proportion of patients below 12 millimeters of mercury, which is what we define as clinically significant portal hypertension or 20% reduction in the portal pressure. So 46% of patients who received this metformin had a significant drop in portal pressure compared to 8% in patients who received a placebo without any other alterations in blood pressure or hemodynamics or intolerances. So even a drug like metformin may have secondary benefits beyond improvements in fatty liver alone. And what this brought into light when I started thinking about this question that this provider challenged me, yes, I will wait two or three years for additional therapies to become available, but how do I protect my patients who have cirrhosis or who are progressing to cirrhosis? This paper I thought was was incremental. Now, it made me stop and think because it's not just this one paper. There is a wealth of epidemiologic data that's emerging to suggest that a drug as simple
simple as metformin, which is pennies, can decrease risk of liver cancer. And when you combine this with emerging data for medications that can readily be purposed that are also pennies, like statins, there's data to suggest that statins can also decrease portal pressure. So what these authors proposed is, wow, we saw this after one dose of metformin. And yes, this needs to be studied further. What gave me pause is, wow, if this can be observed with metformin and many of my patients, all my patients with fatty liver disease are insulin resistance and can use metformin. But when I combine that and, and, and put it in the framework of the literature that suggests that statin use, and there was a large study evaluating simvastatin and simvastatin at a dose of 20 milligrams increasing to 40 milligrams also reduced hepatic venous pressure gradient when compared to placebo and improved the endocyanine green clearance suggesting that it improved even liver function. So when you think about the armamentarium of medications we can use, we got a metformin that improves portal pressure, we have statins that improve portal pressure, we have beta blockers, carvedilol and propranolol that decrease portal hypertension, that if we can readily leverage and effectively treat using repurposed drugs, each and every metabolic risk factor of insulin resistance and hyperlipidemia and hypertension and combine such drugs together, we may, in, in fact, alter the natural history of hepatic decompensation and minimize portal hypertension, which leads to the development of varices, variceal bleeding, or ascites. So while this paper is a small pilot study that certainly warrants further prospective evaluation, it speaks to the fact that, you know, drug-like metformin is one safe, it's inexpensive, and it can readily be rolled out into very large-scale clinical trials to look at long-term benefit. And I, you know, I kind of chuckled because I, I said, well, yeah, I could, I could potentially make the perfect drug for Naphold and Nash. I would put in this drug, you know, a little statin, a little beta blocker, a little aspirin, and potentially a little metformin. And if combined all together, can we, in fact, uh, get a drug that decreases the risk of hepatic decompensation. I mean, people can live and die with cirrhosis in and of itself, but they have negative clinical outcomes, not related to the fibrosis itself, but related to the, the consequences that come downstream of that, the alterations in vascular remodeling and endothelial function. And so if we can prevent those hemodynamic alterations, we can actually decrease morbidity and mortality from cirrhosis. So it really made me think about how we can um, empower our providers while we continue moving the drug development land landscape forward such that they feel that they can offer their patients something right here, right now in the absence of an FDA-approved drug. That's fascinating and raises a few questions. You are the first person back in January, February, who impressed on all of us that you might not have to reverse fibrosis in order to make a meaningful change in a patient's life if you could simply stop its progression. That's really what I hear you talking about. Now, reversal would be great, but even if you could just stop progression at that point, people could have quality of life. And I've also been bold enough to say that in retrospect, we have been hindered as a field by, yes, insensitive endpoints to the very high bar that we've set for a reversal of fibrosis uh, by one stage in one to two years, and then having insensitive enough clinical endpoints to ascertain a difference in treatment compared to placebo 
even if such a difference were to be noted, you know, is it clinically meaningful? Did it change the natural history of that disease? And I do believe that stability is a, a fabulous endpoint in and of itself. And we're starting to see that evolution in some of the, the data emerging with semaglutide, for example. There's a signal that we could potentially decrease the risk of fibrosis progression, although we did not see a significant uh, reversal in fibrosis in 96 weeks. So taking patients and keeping them stable without clinically meaningful events is a very reasonable outcome. The challenge is designing trials around such endpoints is, is hard, and we are going to potentially need to reframe how we approach clinical trials for those patients with advanced liver disease. As a clinician, if I were to have 100 patients with cirrhosis and none of them decompensated in the upcoming three to five years, that's a win. Whereas we currently are seeing about a 20% risk of hepatic decompensation in well-compensated patients with advanced liver disease on the order of two to three years. So we care about fibrosis in so much that it's a surrogate for these endpoints. But if we were to take patients and just prevent the endpoints and even utilize an armamentarium of medications that are readily available and probably should be used in patients with metabolic-related liver disease to improve insulin resistance, to improve lipids, to improve blood pressure. And if each one of these in and of themselves has secondary downstream effects on a target hemodynamic response, then it makes sense. And so I turn to the provider and say, you know, you need to drill down to each and every risk factor that this patient has and treat it because pending the ability to put statins and metformin to the test and carvedilol to the test, compounds for which we have measures of hepatic venous pressure gradients compared to placebo, put them to the test and validate these early response. We have nothing to lose by repurposing these drugs and, and treating the comorbidities and hoping that we also get downstream improvements in, um, in decompensation. It's an overarching goal, but I think it's a very low-hanging fruit, so why not? You're dealing with drugs that where the safety profiles, for better or worse, are pretty well-known, usually for better, and we don't have better solutions. It's interesting. So, Louise? I just find it fascinating. I'm just listening to the theories behind it, and it's great. I went to, how would I measure that? How would I look to that in the real world? And obviously, I use FibroScan, and we know that we can use FibroScan to measure pressure. And we know that there are multiple studies with FibroScan using internal pressures to look at how long you fast before you do a fiber scan. So it's that's why it's advised more than three hours after a meal because of those internal pressure gradients when they came down. From what Manal was saying there, maybe we can predict fasting, non-fasting fiber scans in people with fibrosis. With fibrosis, it causes a peripheral resistance to the blood flow going through, as we know. Therefore, if there's a peripheral resistance, the blood flow stacks. The more blood coming through the liver, the higher that pressure becomes. Maybe we can predict when they're getting increased pressure gradients as their disease alters by doing fasting, non-fasting fibre scans. Also, if you can couple that with blood pressure, you can see the effect within the heart because it should not be normal every time you eat to really increase your portal gradient with that increased fasting blood flow because that's going to put pressure on the heart, which is presumably where we see the cardiomyopathy. So we do have tools to be able to support and look at this within clinical research in without 
putting mass invasive portal gradients in there. So if we can combine those in trials to look at how we can measure that pressure with kilopascals in a simple way in clinical environments with your primary care physicians, if somebody started somebody on metformin and reduced the portal pressures, you would probably see it within the fibroscan results in primary care. And for those where it didn't or that they started to rise, one would loosely presume that we might be seeing an increase in the, the fibrosis levels. Obviously, we'd have to look at inflammation. We'd have to look at everything else. But if you're doing fibroscans very regularly, you can see this if you do it regularly enough. And that's what tools like this can do because we need a way to monitor it in clinical care and in practice that patients can see a change and a physician can see a deterioration or a positive change. We can see it with panel on use. We can see it. So yeah, that's where what Manal was discussing took me as to how I can measure that. How can I assist? What can we do that we can put readily into doing a trial or clinical care? And in fact, to what you're saying, Louise, there is data now emerging that these non-invasive markers can be followed longitudinally and inform a clinically meaningful outcome, whether it's alterations in transient elastography over time, alterations in FIT4 over time, alterations in ELF score, and even very exciting data from Alina Allen suggesting that even a one kilopascal score and change in both differences at baseline, but over time in MR elastography can inform a clinically meaningful outcome. So it is conceivable that we, pending an FDA-approved drug, that our providers can effectively utilize repurposed drugs such as metformin or statins or carvedilol in combination to treat the complications of metabolic syndrome. Both the statins and even the beta blockers have demonstrated an increase in hepatic endothelial function, a decrease in thrombogenesis, a decrease in inflammation, a decrease in oxidant stress, and a decrease in hepatic fibrogenesis. So why not effectively empower ourselves to be able to use what we have readily available, and which is really pennies for affecting a global epidemic? We really do need cost-effective therapies that can be readily available. And while we may be seeing FDA approval on the foreseeable horizon here, remember that even after every new drug approval, we're still going to have potential delays in access to care. The landscape still has yet to be defined depending on which drug, when, and, and in what capacity it will be approved. Clinical outcome is also on the foreseeable horizon. It's very hard to look at somebody and say, wait, just wait. You know, how long can you possibly say that to somebody who knows that they have cirrhosis? Wait and do what? It's a point of contention and frustration. It doesn't really go over very well. But I think as this exciting data accrues, both with statins and with metformin and with beta blockers or even ARBs and ACE inhibitors, for which we're seeing an effect in animal models on fibrogenesis, we should use these drugs to our empowerment to be able to concomitantly treat our patients who have an indication for their use. And I, I, I do believe that the funding of the cirrhosis consortia is going to propel us forward in our understanding of this advanced liver disease and how to approach our patients in such a manner that we can have evidence-based medicine to inform our decisions and our approach to their care, not only with fatty liver disease, but with other forms of, of 
of advanced liver disease as well. So let me pull on a couple, as we get towards a half an hour, let me pull on a couple small threads here and see what comes out. Right? Um, thread number one, what percentage of your patients with advanced fibrosis or compensated cirrhosis are currently taking statins, would you guess? Sadly, too low a percentage. Well, actually, the funny thing is that's not a bad answer given what this conversation has said, right? Yeah. The bad answer is everybody. No. You know, we pulled our use of statins here at a big academic tertiary medical center. And in our liver clinic, it was only about 30%. And across many other liver clinics at tertiary medical center, it's typically around 25 to no more than 40%. There's the concern of use of statins in patients with chronic liver disease. Those concerns have been kind of debunked, but we have to make a prudent push to put our patients back on statins who can otherwise tolerate them and use them and to re-educate providers to feel no reservations for using statins in patients with pre-existing elevation of liver aminotransferases. And in fact, there's data that it may actually improve liver enzymes. So sadly, even at a ivory tower institution, the broad use of statins in patients with fatty liver disease and even other forms of chronic liver disease is relatively low. So we can increase that substantially. So I often find myself putting patients on statins and sending them back to their doctors with reassurance. How about metformin? You know, metformin is used broadly as a backbone for for treatment of metabolic syndrome, Mm -hmm. Uh, but typically sometimes stopped when patients go on insulin or in fact have other potential therapies that can be used. SGLT2 inhibitors are promising GLP-1 agonists. So I think metformin's almost fallen by the wayside, both with the treatment of fatty liver disease or even sometimes diabetes. There were early studies that didn't suggest it was a um, strong therapeutic for NASH per se, but those studies were powered relatively small and there was mixed results from various pilot studies. But I think where we don't have effective therapies as of yet, if we have reason or an indication for use of metformin in the backbone of a treating metabolic syndrome and such use decreases the risk of primary liver cancer, decreases portal pressure, optimizes insulin resistance, induces a little weight loss, then maybe we need to not be completely putting on the shelf these these long-term therapies that may be oldies, but yet have some hidden goodies in them too. So I love this conversation, in part because I'm a big fan of counterintuitive thinking by nature, and in part because as we progress, we learn things differently than we knew them before. So it's entirely possible even that the way we thought about the disease 10 years ago, 15 years ago, would have made it less likely for us to value the level of benefit that you can get from a metformin or from a statin, right? We were looking for we were looking for bigger hits and we thought we were going to get more dramatic drugs. This has been, it's, it's great. It's counterintuitive. It's practical. You could do it tomorrow and it deals with patients who need help. Louise, do you have anything you want to add before we go to final question? The only thing I had to add was that when Manal was describing, I put a bit of metformin here and put a bit of this there and did thing a cauldron and doing stipping it all in <laughs> and mixing it together it was the way you described it so beautifully <laughs> it's, it's kind of the opposite of stone soup yeah, isn't yeah. it Everything you throw in has value. Yeah, that's good. A sprinkle that's of good. this. Actually, it kind of it kind of is stone soup because you just start with nothing. It's good. <laughs> I like it. Okay, 
Uh, closing question. One thing a listener should take away from this conversation. As I was reading the literature and, and reflecting on this portal hypertension and cirrhosis, I came across a beautiful review by Dr. Jamie Bosch, who I admire. He's a brilliant man and has, has really contributed significantly to this field in, in his profession. And he wrote something in this editorial that I'll leave you know your listeners with. And this isn't just for any listener, but he was reflecting on the field. And his review was actually published in February 2020 in Clinical Liver Disease. And it was entitled Portal Hypertension and Cirrhosis from Evolving Concepts to Better Therapies. And he ends this commentary with an old Danish proverb, and I won't read it in Danish, but it's translated to be, it is difficult to make predictions, especially about the future. But Dr. Bosch goes on to say, but in this field, the sky is not covered by stormy clouds. On the contrary, it looks Looks like a clear summer night with a myriad of brilliant stars illuminating the dreams of the young investigators who are accepting the challenge of continuing to improve the prognosis of patients with cirrhosis. So to all those young investigators out there, we got a lot of work ahead of us. To all our patients out there, I think there is starry nights and sunny skies ahead. And to the pharma industry and to all those that have contributed to the advancements of this field, we can look back on the past decade and say, wow, look how far we've come. And I do believe that our progress is going to move faster and faster. So on that note, I think I can finish because Dr. Bosch said it more brilliantly than I could. But you but you filled in all the detail, which is good, really helpful. Louise, what, what, uh, just a sentence or two. I'm not going to add anything to Manel's, but I would have loved to hear a reading in Danish. <laughs> Well, I guess you're, you're going to need to get Dr. Bosch on, on your, your... It was your, a beautiful uh, bit of poetry, and, I, and he'll have to come on so he can do it in Danish. That's worth thinking about. You know, I think a lot of history of this industry in the last 20 or 30 years has been about situations similar to what you described, where people go take a look at old drugs in new lights and see different things. So I would encourage everybody to keep thinking about that all the time, particularly in the face of problems that either appear intractable or where patients appear at real risk. And the isn't evident. Thank you for bringing that. that. That's been a fantastic addition to this episode and this podcast. And I'll, you and I should catch up in a couple of weeks and find the next time for you to come on. Um, hopefully, hopefully before you're part of the faculty for ASLD in November. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Manel. Enjoy your day. Right. Bye-bye. 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 Hi, welcome to an abbreviated business section with only two items. These items include great news from podstatus.com and what's shaping up to be a really exciting October schedule. More great news from Podstatus. If you've seen our LinkedIn or Twitter postings, then you know by now that we actually became the number one medical podcast for a day in Macedonia, followed by a couple of days at number two, and that we've been in the top 10 in five countries in the last 30 days. What you probably don't know is that before Sunday, we had never been on the charts in more than eight countries in a single day, but we were on nine Sunday, 11 on Monday, 12 on Tuesday. And the countries that joined during those days were, I think, India, Germany, France, big countries. I won't see the Wednesday numbers for a few more hours. Thanks everybody for coming and staying with us. By the way, if you are a listener from Macedonia, can you please send contact information to questions at surfingnash.com because I would like to speak with you and maybe even interview you for the podcast. Next week, I hope to be able to share an anecdote or two about how some of the companies that listen to this podcast are integrating our weekly episodes into their scan of the disease in the market. Cool stuff. The fantastic four episodes of October. 
I'm already excited about our October schedule. On October 4th, we will do a highlights podcast on the National Liver Conference taking place in San Antonio the previous Friday. On October 11th, Lars Johansson is joining us to discuss in detail some of the items from his Paris Nash talk on innovations in imaging, the one Stephen recommended so highly during last week's episode. On October 18th, Scott Friedman, informally known as the father of fibrosis, is joining us for a deep dive into fibrosis, which should again cover some of the same themes Stephen mentioned from his talk at Paris Nash. Finally, on October 25th, Alina Allen from the Mayo Clinic will join us to discuss a recent publication in hepatology titled MRE for Prediction of Long-Term Progression and Outcome in Chronic Liver Disease, a Retrospective Study. Those of you who remember Alina's appearance this spring should be looking forward to her return as much as I am, which is a great deal. And with that, I want to thank Ian, Michelle, and Manal for their superb interviews, and Louise for, as always, finding the wellness viewpoint in each conversation. Also, thanks to Riverside FM for recording, Buzzsprout for distribution, our new editing software, SimonSays.ai, which Mike picked out because it enables him and me to collaborate better, and of course, the Surfing Nash crew. We will post the next episode on Wednesday, September 29th. Until then, stay safe, surf on, see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Have any questions for the surfers? You can send them to surfingnash.com and we will answer on the podcast or the website.